Alright, good morning. Uh, we are today... Uh, oh, my name's Tommy, by the way. Good to meet you all. Can't see you. Good to meet you. Uh, yes, I'm wearing a jacket today. It's Easter. Um, this is Hoss Up. Tie or a jacket. I wore a tie last year. Jacket this year. Um, so, uh, today I'm going to be sort of telling two resurrection stories at once. Um, you may not realize this. There are dozens of three-day loss... Um, God is not present, and then God returns. There's dozens of these three-day stories in the scriptures. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about a few of them, one of them in particular. And so today's passage takes place really in 1 Samuel chapter 5, 4, 5, and 6. Um, so I'm preaching a, a resurrection Easter sermon from 1 Samuel. So here we go. Um, but we're going to parallel that right alongside uh, Matthew's account of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ And we're going to look for some parallels because the things that we as human beings experience in life, in the spiritual journey um, of the the journey towards the cross, the journey towards becoming more and more like Christ, there is always this period of the three-day death, burial, resurrection journey. It takes, it, it, it. It is reflected at some point in all of our lives. And today we're going to talk about what this looks like. We're going to talk about people who have been through this. Um, and hopefully you'll come out of this with a lot more meaning. Um, and, and you'll come through this with a, a bigger understanding of, of this story as it pertains to all of us. So let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, we come and we gather together. And in a, in a place like this, on a day like this, there, is, there are heavy things that that people bring into this room. There is fear, there is loss, there is loneliness, there is um, skepticism and doubt. There is um, a long journey behind a lot of people and, and a long climb out for a lot of them. There are also hopeful and joyful things, things that maybe are coming that are joyful but we're still afraid of. Um, in this moment, we lift all those things up to you. They all sort of are playing out within the story of your people. They all have a place and a purpose. And they're all painful and difficult and scary. And so today, we choose to focus on the hope part of it all. We choose to focus on the resurrection. And today, I ask that you would give us exactly what we need. Show us what we need to see. Give us um, whatever it is that, that we need to push forward through darkness um, because light is coming. And teach us to wait and rest. Thank you. Your name. Amen. All right. So um, 1 Samuel takes place in, a, in an ancient mindset where there were many, many carved gods. Okay. So um, 1 Samuel is really written in, a, in an ancient tribal world about 15, 16, maybe 1800 years before um, Jesus walks on the earth. And the world at that time, between the, the, the writing of Samuel and the, the entering of Jesus into the world, the world had changed drastically. But what we'll see is the story kind of stays the same, the story of God's people. Um, and so there's all these tribes, and tribes in the ancient world existed um, for two reasons. They existed first to grow their own tribe and become more powerful. Second, to, uh, to conquer all the other tribes wipe them out, wipe their names um, out of existence, 
um, and expand their own tribe, make it bigger and bigger and bigger to get to the point in the first century where there are empires. Um, and there were these smaller sort of empires rising up at the time, the Akkadians, the Assyrians. Um, and um, there was one particular tribe that came out of the Middle East um, a very long time ago. And it was a particular tribe uh, called the Israelites. And their god wasn't represented by um, a carved idol. Their god was represented, honestly, by a box. Like, God lived in this box. They called it the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones. Um, don't, don't look inside. Um, and uh, inside this box, it was, it was sort of, it was God in a box. It, he would go with them everywhere they went. Like, they would carry him. And sometimes he was in the box, and sometimes he was hovering above the box. And other times he would take the form of uh, lightning and the blast of trumpets on top of a mountain. Sometimes he was cloud descending upon a a tabernacle, a sort of a tent that they would meet with God in. Sometimes it was a pillar of fire. Sometimes it's different ways that this God would take form, but he was not at all a carved idol. Of all the things that this God was, he was not a carved idol like the rest of the world. Um, And so this was the God of the Israelites. His name was Yahweh. And they met him in the desert. Um, The desert was a place not owned by any people. Um, All other gods had a specific geographical location that they lived in. And whoever lived there worshipped that god. There was a local tribe near them called, as they were traveling through the desert, they were called the Philistines. And the Philistines had this god named Dagon. The Philistines were kind of sailing people. um, And the Israelites were nomadic desert people. And so their god in a box with poles, they could move them around. The, The Philistines had this... God named Dagon, and when you actually, if you were to Google image like Dagon, you're, what you're going to see is carvings that look a lot like a merman. Uh, half dude, half fish. Um, sometimes it looks more like a merman than like a Disney movie. Like it's a full on merman that they would carve and they would just put up in this specific temple that they built for their God, Dagon. The Philistines were an advanced civilization in their day, um, they were what's called a, a, um, an Iron Age tribe. They had this advanced weaponry. They figured out how to make iron. The Israelites did not. The Israelites, uh, when they were attacked, a lot oftentimes they would take their, um, their tools and they would fight with those tools or they would try to scavenge um, other defeated peoples that they found and take their weapons. We have, we have a record of that, them stripping the sort of uh, Egyptian weapons. But they didn't know how to make weaponry. They weren't a warring tribe. The Israelites existed for a different reason than all the other tribes in the world. The Israelites existed to bless all the other tribes. So while all these other tribes are warring and trying to destroy all the other ones, including the Philistines, um, the Israelites existed to bless the world. And they had different kinds of laws about welcoming um, outsiders, immigrants, and, and their, law, their laws were far more progressive than, than the rest of the laws in the world. They were, they were more loving, they were more just, um, and it was sort of the beginning of the movement forward um, for God's people. Now, at some point, a fight erupts between them and the Philistines. The Philistines are attacking them. The Philistines are out to empire build. They're out to destroy and really destroy Israel. Because think of that. If there's one tribe that's blessing all the other tribes, what's going to happen? They're going to build relationships, and it's going to be as if there were one massive tribe, and the Philistines can't have this. So the Philistines take their advanced weaponry, their swords and their shields and their spears and their chariots, and they attack They go to war against the Israelites, and the Israelites go to battle, and they are destroyed the first time. They're defeated in battle, and they go home. Um, 
and they're in mourning and they're sorrowful and they, they hatch a plan and they know they're about to be attacked again by the Philistines and so they decide, well, why don't we take God with us? He's mobile, he's got a box. We can pick him up, we can take him with us to the battlefield. And they do this because in the ancient world when you were going to battle, it wasn't like just the people were battling. It was as if the gods were battling and whoever's god was more powerful would win. And in the ancient world, it's all about having a powerful god, right? A god that destroys the enemy. Um, and so they do, they pick up the ark and they take it with them into battle. And they're destroyed, they're wiped out. And the ark is captured by the Philistines. And the people go back and they're, they're just wailing, they're in mourning, they've lost their god, now they have no protection, they're terrified. Um, it doesn't make any sense to them. And so the priest of the temple, whose job it was, to offer the sacrifices, to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices sort of to appease Yahweh as they understood it. Um, He finds out that the ark is gone and he's the priest. And as the text says, this is not my words, this is the text, it says he was very, very large. Uh, And when he finds out that the ark is gone, he falls out of his seat somehow and breaks his neck and dies. And so now they have no God and they have no priest their entire structure of sort of worship is sort of falling apart here. And, and the, um, the priest has a son who, <coughs> excuse me, who died in battle. And the priest's son has a wife who is pregnant. And so here's where we're going to go to First Samuel and we're going to read about this right here. So the wife of Phineas was pregnant. She was Eli's daughter-in-law. It was near the time for her baby to be born, and she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured, and she heard that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. So she went into labor and had her baby, and her pain was so great that her life was slipping away. As she was dying, the women who were helping her spoke up. They said, don't be afraid. You have had a son, but she didn't reply. She didn't pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod. She said, the God of glory has left Israel. So the focus is going to be on here for a moment on on the name Ichabod, the name that she names her son. In Hebrew, it looks like this, and it's read from right to left. And so there's there's a root word, and the word is is kavod. So uh, here, let's line this up under here. Um, Kavod sort of replaced the B with a V. Um, Kavod means glory. It means divinity. It uh, it means weight, and it's sort of it's that feeling you get when you sense something bigger than yourself there. Um, it's a little taste of it would be that spiritual feeling you get when you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, right? Like it's, there's something bigger than yourself or when you see that you are part of a bigger thing than just yourself, that there is divine, there is a God who is present. And so the word for that divinity and that glory, that weight is kavod. But by putting an ich in front of kavod, you're actually negating the word. It's like putting eh in front of theist and becoming atheist. It takes a word and inverts the meaning of it. So Ichabod means no glory, no God, no meaning. She was in a place where maybe she thought her God was stronger than that. Um, but apparently she finds out that her God isn't strong at all. And her father-in-law, the priest, is now dead And their God was literally picked up and just carried away. And what do you do with that? And so she finds herself in this place of deep sorrow and mourning, um, as you do 
when your eyes are opened to the fact that this image you had in your head of how exactly things were, things are not like that. And make no mistake, this is what God does. God's, God's not in the, in the business of um, deifying our idols. He likes to take our picture of him and break it down and give us a new one. Because that's how we grow. And so this is what God is doing in her life. And she names her son no glory. As if to say, when he grows up, I don't want him to buy into the things that I bought into. I don't want him to put this hope in this thing that's one day just going to be carried away and everything's going to be destroyed. And then she just dies. And it's a tragic story and it's how it ends. Um, All through scriptures, this actually happens over and over and over. God's people... Their understanding of God is destroyed and ruined. And it's part of the journey that God takes them on. Um, so day one, there's a, in scriptures you're going to see lots of these day one, day two, day three kind of things. I'll point out a few of them this morning. But day one is what uh, St. John of the Cross calls uh, the dark night of the soul. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, it's a period of spiritual desolation suffered in which all sense of consolation is removed. It's, it's when sort of the veil is lifted and things turn out, they're not like you thought they were. And you don't know what to do with it. It doesn't make any sense. And you're wrestling with this spiritual idea of like, what about what I had? Where did it go? What do I do now? And you just kind of declare Ichabod. Well, we see it in day one of, um, of the death of Christ. Christ has all these followers. Jesus actually had, um, at one point, you may, you may not realize this, Jesus had 500 disciples. And then he had an inner circle of like 90. And then he had a, a, like a super inner circle of 12. So it's not just Jesus traveling with 12 people. It's Jesus would go somewhere and all of his disciples would meet him there. 500 people. Paul references them later. Because um, apparently they, Jesus appeared to all of them later. And Paul says they're all here. All 500 of the disciples of Christ are still around. You can ask them what they saw. Um, so Paul's writing sort of to a bunch of skeptics. Um, and so Jesus has all these disciples that believe the world is changing. They believe specific things now about God, and they believe the Messiah is here, and they have a specific idea about how this is supposed to work. And I, I, let's look at some like pieces of Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus dies on the cross. And then it describes some of the people that are there around him. It says, there were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. I, it, that's not saying that they just traveled from the city of Galilee. Um, this is, they've been with Jesus for a long time, following Jesus. They are invested in this. And they're sitting, looking on from a distance, as Jesus, their Messiah, their rabbi, their teacher, has, is hanging on a cross and dying and dead. And then there's this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. It's not Joseph, the father of Jesus. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich guy who became a follower of Rabbi Jesus. And it says, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. He had a, he had a brand new tomb. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in, which he, in which he had cut in the rock. Um, and so he kind of takes responsibility. He says, I'll take the body. Um, I'm rich enough. I have a place to put. And so he wraps the body of Jesus and place, places it in the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, again, that's always unfortunate, the other Mary, um, were there sitting opposite the tomb. 
And so now, not only were people sitting off in the distance watching Jesus die, now this guy takes Jesus and wraps him and places him in his tomb. And then you have Mary and the other Mary um, sitting back and just staring into the tomb. Just, what do we do? Ichabod, like there's no, like this is the ancient, the ancient audience, the Jewish audience, this is what they say. That's what all of this means. They've been here before. But every time they get here, it's like hope has gone all over again. This was it. This was supposed to be the change. They've been waiting 400 years for some kind of prophet to do something. Here they were. They were raised believing this thing about God, and it was taking place, and it was real, and now it's not real. None of them expected Jesus to die. None of the disciples. This was not part of Jewish theology. If, if the Messiah was killed, he was not the Messiah. Except God doesn't really care about our ideas about how God works. And God changes everything. That's what God does. And so the Messiah is dead, and he lets the people sit in that for three days. Day two um, is different. Day two is, is what... what, what um, that our Christian forefathers have, have traditionally called like the day of hiddenness. Um, John of the Cross writes this. He says, God has to work in the soul in secret and in darkness because if we fully knew what was happening and what mystery, transformation, God and grace will eventually ask of us, we would either try to make, try to take charge or stop the whole process. If we really understood what God was doing, if it was all just there, like if God just laid it all out for you, you would... As we do, we would just kind of take charge of this whole thing, right? Um, or we'd just be like, no, I'd, I'd rather, how many of you have said, I wish I could unread that, or I, could, I wish I could go back in the safe place I was when I was a kid. I wish I could go back to just having my parents' faith or just having my childhood and watching other people struggle with things when everything was easy for me. And a lot of us have had those thoughts, I just wish I could go back, but there's this hiddenness in what God is doing, and the the followers of Jesus that have gone before us have always known this, that there is a journey of God's people through darkness. And so this is how day two works. It's a day of hiddenness. And when we get to, uh, we go back to our story of Israel and the Philistines and the God on the box and day gone, by the end of day one, um, Jesus and the Ark of the Covenant kind of looked the same. Jesus is dead. He's lying in a tomb. Um, the ark has been captured and it's laying in the temple of Dagon, right next to Dagon, the merman god. Um, and then we come to the next day, day, day two in the morning, 1 Samuel 5.3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So, something happened throughout the night. We're not told what we're not told if like an Israelite snuck in and was like, hey, he's bowing down and then snuck back out. Or, or if something happened that was supernatural in the room, we just have no idea. We don't even know what the priests are thinking. But the priests walk into the room and their merman is like on the ground before the box. Like, this does not look good. No, it doesn't look good. We should pick it up. We should pick it up. And they pick it up and they put it back. Because on day two, part of this whole thing is that evil is propped up. How many times do we watch evil people rise into charge and then they spend the whole time sort of propping up what they're doing? No, no, everything's fine. Everything's working great. Evil is a good way to go. It works 
And all God's people, all, or all just those on the side of justice and love and grace and mercy are sitting back saying, there's no way that's going to work. Evil just, it doesn't, it doesn't last. And then you come to the story of Jesus on day two and you read this. The next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, I don't know what it means to seal the tomb. I don't know if they had uh, like first century concrete mortar of some kind and they seal the tomb up, but then they place two big Roman guards in front of it with weapons and, and they're propping this, this victory up. This is what they're doing. They're saying, now we have to contain this victory. Um, because when you achieve things by evil, by injustice, um, you have to keep committing these evil injustices or you have to keep propping this thing up to keep it going. If you look at how this whole thing came apart, uh, this whole thing came to be with Jesus, first off, they used treachery to arrest Jesus. Treachery. In other words, they went and found one of his friends who they knew had a vice. Uh, He kind of liked money a little more than the other people. And they said, hey, we've got money for you. You just need to just give Jesus a kiss on the cheek in our presence and let us know who it is. Um, And so there's there's this treacherous plan the betrayal of a friend that they hatched against Jesus. And then they used slander to charge Jesus. These stories were trumped up, absolutely made up. Um, there's actually, I was reading Matthew this, this morning, and there's this passage in there where um, Pilate, the guy who convicted Jesus, his wife has this dream and this vision where um, things go really bad because Jesus is this holy, righteous person who is serving and loving those around him. And she, in her dream, has this vision uh, that just terrifies her. We're not even told what happens. And she goes to her husband and says, do not convict this guy. He's righteous. He's good. Don't do it. But he's stuck in the system. He's, he's been a part of this whole thing of raising up this unjust, violent system. And now um, he's crucifying. He's standing there before this guy who... As a rabbi, he's doing everything different than any other rabbi. He's taking this whole thing and turning it upside down. And he's, he, him and all of his disciples are seeking the bottom rungs of society and lifting them up and, and loving them and nourishing them and serving them and giving them sort of an identity and a purpose. And the entire Roman Empire is built upon, we're the powerful ones. You want to be like us. You want to serve us. And you want to fear us. Jesus has no fear of them. And so they hatch this whole plan and they slander and charge him. And then he's illegally and unjustly tried and convicted. This trial happens in the middle of the night. Jewish trials did not happen in the middle of the night. Um, Roman trials did not happen in the middle of the night. And have you ever wondered why um, on just a couple days earlier, there's all these people like waving palm fronds as Jesus enters into the city. And then suddenly... Um, Jesus is on trial and they're like, crucify him, crucify him. And then later they're all weeping as he's being crucified. You're like, what is going on? Like, what is with these people and the wild swing of emotions? That's because they all had the Passover. At the Passover, you drink about seven glasses of wine and then, and then you go to sleep. And you get up in the morning and you go to the temple to watch the sacrifices. But in the middle of the night, after the Passover, when they know nobody's going to be out there to watch the trial in the, in the center of the city... They're there in the middle of the night trying Jesus. And the only people that showed up are the people that are against him. And it's completely unjust. It's an unjust trial. And they convict him. And then they bribe the guards to silence them. 
Um, a few days later, Jesus' body is gone, and the guards, there are people like, what happened? And the guards are like, I don't know, there was like a bright light, and just, I fell asleep. And then he was gone. It was like this divine thing. And they call him in, the religious leaders of the day, and they give them a bunch of money and say, hey, just don't talk about it. Or tell them that people knocked you out and took the body. And so they keep propping this thing up. But you can't do that forever. You just can't go on like this, constantly using scheme after scheme after scheme to prop this thing up. And so there's this idea that God's people on day two begin to have hope, while at the same time, the evil, victorious, powerful ones on day two are beginning to doubt. So while our hope is sort of rising Others, sort of, their doubt is rising up within them. And this is sort of the way the story goes. Um, We start to look back and we start to see, wait a minute, we've been here before. And God has led me through this and this and this and this. I'm going to hang on and I'm going to sit here a while. I'm just going to sort of wait for it. And we're going to see how this goes. Meanwhile, on the other side, they're scrambling to keep this thing under lock and key to keep this evil that they've done um, locked up. And then um, we, get to, uh, we get to day three. Day three is the day of restoration. Um, day three is the day of change. Now, day three, um, let's just go ahead and read 1 Samuel 5 and how this goes. Um, so we're back to the Philistines, Dagon, the ark, God in the box. Okay, here we go. But following the morning when they got up, the following morning when they got up, they saw the statue of Dagon, And there it was, lying on the ground again. It had fallen on its face in front of the ark of the Lord. Its head and hands had been broken off. Only the body of the statue was left. Its head and hands were lying in the doorway of the temple. So this story, if you keep reading in in 1 Samuel, it it goes on and on and on. It talks about the people becoming afflicted with these boils, these like sores that were a particular kind of sore that are pretty gross. I'm not going to go into it. Um, And this particular kind of sore made you... um, Unclean, even in pagan temples. Uh, and, then, and then their city got infested with rats, all like at the same time. So this whole thing, the sores and the rats, sores and the smell of the sores, probably attracted the rats. It's a thing. It's gross. Um, and at some point, they just start freaking out. They're like, we don't know what's going on. Put the box on a cart. Send it to the next town. Gad. It's like Tampa. Send it to St. Pete. <laughs> we don't need it. And St. Pete sees it, and they're like, no, 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 no. You send that down on... Down to Largo. We do not need this here. Um, and so, at some point, one of them puts the, puts the ark on a cart with no driver and two cattle and just drives it. Get out of here. And it goes back to Israel. And on the cart, these people, they're trying to make amends to Yahweh or whatever. So they, they literally make these... Gold reproductions of the sores that were on their body and rats, and they put them on there to send it because they're terrified and they're just, they're just doing whatever they can to like get the hex off of them. They don't know how it works. And they send it back, um, and the people receive it and they rejoice and they rejoice. Now, when you're reading ancient texts, 
the question you need to have is, because lots of stuff happened. There's tons and tons of stories that could have been kept and told that weren't in the ancient world that had to do with God's people and Yahweh. So we have specific stories that we are given. Um, and you need to ask a question, why is this story saved? And this is kind of when you meditate on scriptures, like this is part of it. Why would this story be kept? There's a reason for it. What does it mean? Even John said at the end of, at the, end of the Gospel of John, uh, there are so many things that Jesus did that if they were all written down, they would fill every library. There's, there's not enough library to keep all these books in. So a little bit of hyperbole, but it, what he's, he's getting at a point here. He's saying, like, he's saying that basically we have these stories. We saved these stories and wrote these down for a reason. And so we pondered that reason. Why is this story important? Um, because from the beginning, God's people had been told over and over and over again, don't be afraid of the powerful. Don't be afraid of the evil ones. They're powerful because they've done, oftentimes, these terrible evil, evil things, especially in a tribal world. Um, and then he says, uh, over and over and over again, you don't need to envy them. You don't need to try to be like them. You exist for a different reason. You are called out. You are separate. Um, you are going to be live holy. It comes from this word hagios, which means different. You're just, you're different. God is different. Your God is different than other gods. You are a different tribe than all the other tribes in the world. And so there's this constant message to be reminded, don't fear them. You continue living righteous lives. Continue to strive for mercy and grace. Continue to live by the ways that God has laid out for you. Continue, continue, continue. It will oftentimes feel like you are defeated. It will feel like Ichabod. It will feel like there's no divinity, no glory. It will feel like this all has no purpose and no future. But you must not fear that. Just know that sometimes it's like he says, I'm going to go hidden. I'm going to do some work. And I'm going to come back. And when God comes back, every single time they view him differently. So we go to uh, Matthew 28, and you find day three of Jesus, right? And it goes like this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that would be day three of our story, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, went to see the tomb. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. It's like the first thing he wants them to know is, Do you remember what I said? Don't be afraid. You move forward. You keep going. You continue the prayer and the following and seeking the divine and you continue uh, in the mercy and the grace you continue in communion and you continue um, gathering as my people you continue and you continue and you continue and you will see the hiddenness of God suddenly become visible again he will return and it's just like he walks up very greetings you're like oh there you are there you are I didn't know where you were now I get it and he's like, don't be afraid. And it's the same story over and over. And this story plays out all through scriptures. And you have to see this because there are, it will be if there's not already, even now, a time in your life when you go into the dark night of the soul, 
You have to see these things because we've been there before. Genesis 40. Oh, this is, so this is, uh, there's this guy named Joseph and he's in prison and he meets this other guy um, who was the cupbearer to Pharaoh. And, and he's terrified because he somehow offended the king and he gets thrown in prison and he tells Joseph, Joseph makes friends with him. And then Joseph gets this word from God and says, and looks at the guy and he says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head up and restore you to your position. And then um, at that moment, after that happens, um, Joseph sort of realizes he has this different kind of relationship with God different than everyone around him. It changes, it shifts his whole view. Exodus 5.3, uh, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and be ready on the third day. So this is the, the Israelites, they're in the desert and they get to Mount Sinai and they're there. They, have, they don't really have a covenant with any god in the ancient tribal world. There were local gods that only lived in these local places and they're in the middle of the desert, there's no god there but there's this god that's sort of traveling with them and it's confusing and they don't know their place in the world. They get to Sinai and this God reaches out and calls them and says, hey, I'm with you. You don't need to come to me. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to move with you. Um, and so they get to this mountain and says, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow and be ready the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on, Mount, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He's going to appear and it's like he's just going to say, greetings, don't be afraid. And then you get to Joshua 1.6. The people have been wandering in the wilderness. They keep doubting this God, and they've been wandering in the wilderness. And they get to the edge of the wilderness uh, to where the place that they, that they describe as flowing with milk and honey, the place God has for them to be, their own land, all any tribe has ever wanted. And God looks at them and says, now you've got to trust me. Don't be afraid. There's people there. And the way that they're described is terrifying. And it says, be strong and courageous. Three days from now, you will, cro- you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land and the Lord your God is giving you for your own. This story happens over and over and over in scriptures and there's a reason that this story happens. Uh, it's not just that it happened, it's that it happens every day. It is part of the journey of spirituality. There is a time uh, in your life where something shifts and something changes and God disappears. At least it appears to you that way. And he's gone. I've been there. Have you been there? And you just kind of declare Ichabod on the whole thing. There's no glory. There's no God. There's nothing weightier. There's nothing divine or or heavy about anything. But as you sit in that, and as that feeling sort of washes over you and it normalizes, um, you start to come to a new understanding because God is hidden and he's doing something different and then one day it's just like God shows up he's like hey greetings good to see you I told you not to be afraid you have these ideas in your mind and God is not in the business of maintaining your ideas and your idols he wants to knock them down and destroy them and give you something new that is that is for you in this journey that you are on towards God this is how it works um, right now, there are a lot of people declaring sort of Ichabod on all of Christianity, the whole thing. Um, they declare that Christianity is, not, is, is one of the problems in the world, along with all the other world religions, that we need to move past this, that uh, it's, it's dying, it's this thing that we're not going to have anymore. Um, I would declare there, there are portions of that that I can declare over certain aspects of the church and what we as followers of Jesus have been doing. Um, 
But I think oftentimes we sell ourselves short, and, and when we hear people talk about Christianity being one of the problems in the world, we actually need to push back and say, I think you are mistaken. I think you need to go back and watch exactly what happened, because Christianity is actually part of the solution in the world. Because here's what's happened. Um, you have this rabbi who treats people different than any rabbi ever has, um, who, who seeks for the bottom. He chooses... The, the lowest of the low people to be his own disciples, murderers and thieves and rejects from Jewish society, they're going to be my followers. I'm going to spend my time in the synagogue, not, not like standing up and showing my authority. I'm going to gather people and I'm going to fill them and I'm going to give them authority. And then I'm going to send these everyday people, these nobodies. I'm going to turn them into like rabbis, okay? And I'm going to send them out into the world. Go ye there and you're going to immerse people. Baptize them in the things that you've heard, all right? You're going to immerse them in these things. And these people change the world. And what you see is the world is vastly different after the work of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ than it was before. Because suddenly you see Christians doing, for the first time in human history, these things like, like education for everyone who is around them. Um, um, healthcare, uh, hospitals, all of these things that Christians started doing that the world looked at, governments looked at, and they said, these are actually really good ideas. I think we're going to do these. We're going to take this over. We've got money to do that. Why don't you guys just go over and sing your songs and do your prayers? And I don't know, start some Christian bookstores where you only sell your stuff. <laughs> and that was them conquering us and, and mobilizing to like sort of suppress what we were doing here. And we need to stand up and say, no. I think we were doing that first, and I think we're going to take it back. And I think we're going to strive for justice in the world. I think we're going to get our heads out of the sand. Um, and I think we're going to realize what the resurrection actually means, that things that are dead can be brought back to life. And we look around, and there's tons of dead stuff, um, especially when we look in the mirror. And so we're going to reform this whole thing. And we're going to do away with the oppressive religious system that keeps people down and we're going to humble ourselves to lift others up. And this is what Easter represents. God reveals himself, who he is to us and we wake up and say, oh man, that's so powerful. There's so much power in that. Um, And the God I had before, um, the God on the box I had before just wasn't, it wasn't at all what I see here. This is how it works. I don't know what you're going through. I know a lot of people um, that I've talked to over the last um, six or eight months are going through heavy things. Um, Pain, loss, separation, um, just skepticism and doubt, fear, brokenness. Um, I want to hold up the examples in Scripture that we have of people that have been where you are And all we can do is look back and see how God brought them through and see how we are the descendants of this. And all we can do is trust and have hope that God will bring us through. We know evil is being propped up. It's not standing up. It's not strong. It is being knocked down. It is being destroyed. Uh, We can look and see um, Jesus has won and he is every day winning still. And we're going to take part in that in the good things that Jesus is doing. Salvation is now open to you, to me, um, our lives, our hearts, our nation, our our cities, our souls, um, and all of this because we have seen how we face evil in the world, and this is how you do it, exactly what Jesus did. And so when you think of God, you think of Jesus on the cross. This should be your image. 
this is how we conquer. This is how this works. That's why we take communion. Uh, we're going to take communion now, actually. We do this every week. Our communion is over. You guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Communion has two elements. There's bread and there's wine. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. The, the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for you. The body of Christ broken and poured out for you so that you could be filled up, so that you could find salvation, so that you could be filled. God poured himself out so that you could be filled up. And then Jesus says, now follow me. There is resurrection, there is hope. Um, But resurrection doesn't happen unless something dies first. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pour ourselves out as the body of Christ for the world around us. And we're going to sit in that pain and that darkness and we're going to pour ourselves out and we're going to watch them be filled up. Um, And the, the great, the beautiful thing about the communion table is that in this room there are rich and poor, there are young and old, there are um, all different types of Christians from conservative to moderate to liberal we have there's all kinds of Christians here um, there are sort of some of you live very holy spiritual lives and some of you are just you're skeptics or you're just maybe starting to think about this kind of stuff for some reason maybe something has happened and has brought you here today at the communion table here's the symbolism we all have we all bring different things to the table but we all receive the exact same thing That's how the kingdom of God works. This is not about what you bring to it. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your achievements. It's about the grace of God being poured out for you. There is nothing to do but receive it. There is nothing to do. Receiving the love of God is is the job. And so we step up to the table and we just kind of lay it down. We're honest with ourselves, with others. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, and eat it. And we are filled, each one of us equally. Um, and in the symbol of communion, this is how salvation enters into the world. And so we're going to pray, and uh, let me be one of the first to wish you happy Easter. It's a joyous day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you uh, for what you're doing here. Thank you for these people. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. Fashion us in your image. Give us the hope that we need. Remind us um, of your strength in those times when you seem missing or gone or hidden. Give us patience. Give us the ability to, to sit and meditate upon the things of you, upon those that have come before us, and to trust that you will reveal yourself again and the gift that we will receive is a whole new way of looking at you. May we receive some of that this year on this day. Thank you. Your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.